0: Hello, this is Peter Jonathan Robertson with the 126th episode of the PJ Archive. It's a phone interview I did with the English singer-songwriter Peter Sastit, who's best known for his chart-topping single from 1969 called Where Do You Go To My Lovely. Peter was born in India and moved with his family to the UK when he was 14. His elder brother Richard became a pop star named Eden Kane, and his younger brother Clive achieved chart success as Robin Sastit. Peter sadly died in 2017 at the age of 75. My interview with him took place in 2009, on the 40th anniversary of Where Do You Go To being a number one record, and what an extraordinary story he had to tell.
1: Does it Mm. feel
2: like 40 years since Where Do You Go To was number one?
1: It doesn't seem like 40 years, but every time I look in the mirror, I realize it is 40 years.
2: (laughs) (laughs) How many times do you reckon you've sung that song in the last 40 years?
1: Well, let's say every day.
2: Do you do a gig every day?
1: I sing the song every day because I I rehearse it. I used to do a a, a gig a day, yeah, in the 80s. I, I was working all the time.
2: People might wonder why you need to rehearse it after all this time.
1: Yeah, well, if you don't rehearse, then something goes wrong. I mean, you would have thought that uh, after 40 years, you would be uh, you'd be familiar with it, but but you're not. I've realised this through experience that uh, if you don't rehearse, you don't do a good gig because it's a long song. It's over five minutes 20 in its original length.
2: Were you told it was too long originally?
1: Yes. Uh, it, it didn't have drums uh, on it uh, and it was far too long and they actually cut it down for the single they made it 4 minutes 20 and the original version has got a couple more verses in there I can remember doing the session where the producer said what about that folky one Peter and uh, we, we just managed to get it in so it, it wasn't c- sort of considered uh, an A-side e- even then it was looked upon as, as that folky one
2: Did it sound very different at that stage, though?
1: No, because I'd been singing it for three years in the studio. There was a lot more concern for the other songs, which would need orchestration. And, of course, this one, it didn't need orchestration. It it just had a couple of cellos at the end, and that was an afterthought. It was very much a loose arrangement.
2: Yeah, I mean, there can't be many hits that have used an accordion.
1: No, no. (laughs) Yeah, which is why a producer would, would refer to it in a derogatory way, uh, mm. because it had an accordion. Uh, that, that There aren't too many hits, uh, as you say, but it, it worked in a kind of folky way. All the European countries, of course, loved it. Mm.
2: And was it dismissed, though, by the producer or whatever? Did they actually say, oh, come on, this will never make it, so why do we bother, sort of thing?
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. It was dismissed by the producer and the record company, although it was the first song I would play. And everyone was extremely impressed by it at the time, because I I was well rehearsed, and I'd been singing it for three years.
2: So do I take it that you must have written it in 66, then? Yeah,
1: exactly. I wrote it in 66.
2: Do you know which day and how long it took you?
1: Well, I can recall writing it. It was very easy to write, one verse after another. And I just wrote it as is. I only changed one line or one word. It was an incidental word. But uh, I was able to write it in one go. So it, it took as long <laughs> as it, it, it takes to play. A little bit longer, maybe.
2: Really? really? What, oh. like five minutes?
1: Yeah, exactly.
2: To write that song? hmm So the music came first, presumably? Well,
1: no, 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 no. Song is a third force. You have music and you have poetry, mm-hmm. and then you have song. A third force, which comes at the same time. The words and the music come at the same time. You sit with the, with the guitar and you write the words immediately, you played,
2: But they are such fabulous lyrics. Yes. How do you just come out with those in your head? Mm. I mean, do you know where they came from?
1: I presume it was because I was a professional writer. I was writing all the time. I was writing about eight songs a night. I was very well attuned to actually writing my thoughts. And a part of it is uh, allow your thoughts to happen. And I'd been in Paris about three months, Prior to the actual writing of it. Uh, it, it was October 1966 when I wrote it, in fact, in Copenhagen. As soon as I finished that one, I started another one.
2: When uh, you wrote this one, though, did you suddenly think, wow, that's, that's a bit special, no. that one? You didn't?
1: No. I wanted to write myself an act. And so this was a long song, as far as I was concerned, in terms of the others. And it's a very sardonic song. It's, it, it's a very satiric song. Like when it says, where you keep your Rolling Stones records, that that's meant to be tongue-in-cheek. It's meant as a go against the very rich people, I suppose. Yeah. I can remember Mick Jagger saying to me at the time, he didn't say anything about the song. He just came up to me with a piece of sheet music, which he'd found on the floor. It was of the night they invented champagne. He said, here's your next single, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, he was aware.
2: Did you use it?
1: No. He was being amusing as well. I took that as a compliment that he didn't mind me saying well, where you keep your Rolling Stones records. I, I took that as, uh, as meaning he was on my side.
2: So you wrote it in October 1966, 1966 yeah. in Copenhagen. Yeah. What were you doing in Copenhagen, gigging?
1: I'd come from Paris where I was busking. and I-, I was busking in Copenhagen as well. But I had a place to stay. 400 students were living underneath me. I, I was living in the attic with a friend who was also a busker. We'd come to Copenhagen because we'd heard that there was a, a, a kind of a folk scene there. And uh, it proved to be right. I fell in love. It was a Danish girl, Anita Atka.
2: It's been claimed that Where Do You Go To was influenced by Serge Gainsbourg and Jack Brell and people like that. Was that the case?
1: No, it wasn't. I knew Sasha Distel was a guitarist. Like, he started off as a musician, didn't yep. he? And then he became a singer. And he happened to rhyme with Boulevard (laughs) Saint-Michel. So it's not so much influence, although I encourage that in my mind to be be free.
2: Was it a case like we hear about some songwriters where you have a dream or in the middle of the night you can't sleep and suddenly this tune comes into your head? How did it apply in this particular case?
1: It wasn't so much a dream. As I say, I, I was a professional songwriter. I was working on songs all the time so I was, I was extremely adept at thought processes. It's kind of headlines, with the headlines of European culture. What are the headlines? Marlene Dietrich, C.C. Uh, C. and so on. And these people, I don't know the background of them, but mm. I know of them.
2: And the fact that you knew of them was enough, in a way, yeah, because that exactly. meant everybody would know who they are.
1: Exactly. If you have the trigger, mm. then uh, you pull the trigger, <laughs> of course.
2: How driven to write this song were you by the fact that you'd fallen in love with this Danish girl, Anita?
1: Mm. I don't think I was driven at all. But the fact that I was in love and I was was having a wonderful time was incidental.
2: Were you writing about Anita? Was it devoted to her in any sense? Well,
1: she she claims it was about her, but uh, I don't think so. I think that uh, a lot more is a background piece. My history is of music, and of course India, where I was born. It wasn't until 1969 that we got married, so from 1966 until 1969 were the, the formative years.
2: Are you still married to Anita?
1: Uh, no, no. Okay. We, we had a divorce uh, around about 1974, I've moved on since then, but <laughs> of course I still see her, because we have our children, Anna and Daniel.
2: And what uh, does Anita we, do for a living?
1: She's a dentist.
2: And when you said earlier that she claims that she was the inspiration, has she actually said that publicly or she just says that to you? Well, for... she
1: says it to me, but she also said that, you know, Bob Dylan was just another American. He's a typical American. So she's got a very strange opinion. So when she says that the song was about her, she kind of means it in a, in a, in a funny way. I'm not sure that uh, it's
2: 100%. What's not
1: 100%? I, but the song is about her. I don't think that's She's absolutely right about mm. this one.
2: Is it about any other woman?
1: No, not about a person. It's about a particular European...
2: Did Anita fit that description? Did she talk like Marlene Dietrich?
1: No, because Marlene Dietrich had a famous voice.
2: She did, a husky voice.
1: She had a husky voice, exactly.
2: Did she any was... of the references...
1: No, no. But she knows something about me that other people don't know. She was able to watch me as i composed because mm. I, I was in her room most of the time writing the songs mm. so she she may be right that uh it, it's about her but I, n- I don't actually consciously know that but subconsciously it may be about her although like it's a, it's a heavy load it's a heavy load to take on as the lord said to me once so where are the others of the jet set are we it was in san moritz i hadn't realized this with the others of the jet set mm. he said where are the others are we are the jet set, though. A lot of people take the song very literally.
2: And personally, by the sound of it. Yeah. Have you read any of the theories about this song and who it's devoted to?
1: I haven't actually read anything.
2: I've just got three theories in front of me I'd love to put to you to have you comment on them. One theory says that the song is about Italian star Sophia Loren, who was abandoned by her father and had a poverty-stricken life in Naples. What do you say to that?
1: No, it isn't. It isn't about her. Sophia Loren was a, a very famous woman at the time, in, in 1969, and and so I, I would have thought about her, but it's not about her, because it's a French woman, right? And Sophia Loren was a, an Italian, so it's not about her.
2: Nina Van Pallant.
1: Ah, wow. Nina and Frederick, wasn't it? She was a Dane. Um, no, she has nothing to do with it. It's, uh, as I say, it's
2: This one's the most extraordinary one. It says, In reality, Peter Sarsdick wrote the song about a girl he fell madly in love with in Vienna in 1965. She died tragically in a hotel fire.
1: Ah, yes. It always comes back to haunt you if you tell a lie to the media. Ah. I've started its rumour because uh, I wrote it down as a background piece, like about the hotel fire. I, I, I thought I'd use my imagination, but it was wrong, of course.
2: So basically, in order just to fob the press off, to keep yeah. them quiet or whatever, exactly. you, you made up this story yes, about right. a girl you fell in love with in Vienna who died in a hotel fire. Yes, but it's completely exactly. untrue.
1: Yeah, completely untrue. I made it up. I wrote it there and then. It was a whim.
2: And gave it to a journalist? Yes,
1: right. exactly. But it, it's kind of nice, isn't it, that uh, if she were to die in a hotel fire, it would be, it would be apt. It would satisfy a lot of people.
2: Because it's a sort of romantic, yes. tragic romance. It, yeah,
1: It's it's very tragic, yes.
2: Are there any references to people you knew personally, though, in the song? Any kind of oblique references, even?
1: No, there aren't. It's completely fantasy. It's made up there and then.
2: Did you ever meet a woman with a topless swimsuit?
1: Uh, no, no, <laughs> no. With your carefully designed topless swimsuit, you get an even suntan. But... Uh, I believe there was something at the time. The Swedish were very big on it, being completely topless.
2: Did you ever meet Sasha Distel, Picasso, or anyone else? The Aga Khan or Zizi Jean-Maire?
1: No, no, I didn't meet her, but uh, I met Sasha. I met him one afternoon at the the, uh, Savoy in London. The song came out in February 69, and later in 69, he comes up to me. I happened to be there uh, to meet someone, and he happened to be there as well he came up to me and he picked me up in the air and he moved me around as you do a child he was laughing and he said why have you done this for me you have made me so happy you know it, i was knocked out you know i was absolutely amazed by this Aww. reaction in the middle of the savoy he was just overjoyed that he got immortalized by the song which is is what happens you know when you put someone's name into a song you immortalize this person but, but the reason he's in the song of course is he rhymes with boulevard saint michel apart from the fact of course he was also Brigitte Bardot's lover. Comes earlier in the song, you know, where you keep your Rolling Stones records and a friend of Sacha Distel. Yes. So the friend of Sacha Distel is obviously Brigitte Bardot. For some reason, this all seemed to work at the time. It was a, like a nice couplet. Distel rhymes with Michel.
2: Were any of these your heroes in any way? Would you say Marlena or Picasso? or Were, you, were, they, were they people you admired particularly or just they were just topical references? Picasso,
1: uh, I would have thought... I'm very interested in surrealist art. Uh, a lot of his work was surrealist uh, in, in a way. So he is a, he is a kind of hero of mine. But uh, in the song, You Stole from Picasso, mm. right? Uh, and the painting, You Stole from Picasso. That means she's not above stealing another man's work and saying it's her own, because that was a part of her character. She's completely and utterly the painting you stole from Picasso. Your loveliness goes on and on and on and on and on. It goes on, right? Which is why she is so... Um, she's extremely corrupt.
2: One of the many memorable bits about the song is when you go, ha-ha-ha, I, mm. I can't do it as well as you do. But where, where did that come from?
1: It was a, a kind of folk singer's reference to the song. Once again, it's very tongue-in-cheek and it's meant to include the audience in a kind of carefully rehearsed aside so (laughs) it it is what it is
2: you explained early on that nobody had really believed in the song particularly Mm. and yet it was released as a single in 1969 of course went straight to number one Mm -hmm. um so who who was the watershed for this song who who made it suddenly as into a single
1: well it comes about that a record company it is only as good as the as the people who are there, yeah. and the people who were at this record company, UA Records, United Artists, um, were, were, were extremely good. Especially Barbara Scott, publicist. She was an American, and she understood the song, and she she saw in me something that would make it to number one. It, it's largely Barbara Scott who believed in me, and of course my manager at the time, Chris Pierce. Who believed in me enough to actually end his partnership with chris blackwell with island records i originally recorded the song for island records uh, and when chris blackwell came back he said I, I don't like this guy i think it's it's rubbish and i, I don't think it'll, it'll make number one now chris blackwell he'd already had stevie winwood and uh, people like that bob marley in mm-hmm. fact so chris pierce at that moment leapt up and said i believe in him mm-hmm. i think he will make it in this business. And Chris Blackwell said, no, he'll never make it. I want to sell it straight away, even though you've spent the money on making the album. And he sold me there and then to United Artists. They actually made me pay back the advance which which he'd got. Uh, so Chris Pierce left the company. He said, I want to sell my shares in Island Records now, and I want to sell them back to you, because I will set up my own company, and we'll actually make Sarsa a hit from from Hereford Square.
2: Did he with, make that with. drastic decision because of you? Because he yes. believed in you so much? Exactly. How amazing. How mm-hmm. flattering.
1: Yes. And it was a moment of great drama for him mm-hmm. because he used to name his house. Uh, his house in Hereford Square was, was actually called Millie. Millie was Millie Small.
2: Yeah, I remember that. My yeah, Boy Lollipop. My, yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: That was the first hit which Island Records had. Chris Blackwell was a very shrewd judge of music, but he, he made a mistake. Uh, I don't know if he made a mistake. What
2: well, he must have done it. It went to number one and yeah. everybody still loves it today. Mm. It's a classic, isn't yeah.
1: it? Yeah. It's one of those moments of great drama which happen in the career because you need that. You need something. You need someone to stand up for you.
2: So do I take it then that United Artists then released Where Do You Go To as a single mm. and it went to number one?
1: After releasing I Am A Cathedral, one of the orchestrated ones, they never believed in it strictly. Although... Eventually, they were forced into doing it. And Chris Pierce was working hard on the BBC, like with the producers, for instance, Mm. of the radio shows who actually decide what the DJs will play.
2: Was it a particular play by a DJ that set it off?
1: No, it was a producer. Chris Pierce used to manage various people at the BBC. He managed Val Singleton and various other people. In fact, Val Singleton recorded a couple of my children's songs and once it got played, it took off because this is a very intelligent country. Yes. Everybody loved it amongst a certain standard of people who were the producers. You never see them, but they have a huge influence on people.
2: But over the years since mm. it was released, apart from Sasha Distel that we know about, yeah. has anyone famous ever said to you, I just love that song of yours or whatever?
1: Well, Robin Gibb did say to me, that like he plays the song every day in his bath. i met him in the House of Commons, in fact, and he said, What? You wrote, where do you go to? I said, yes, well, I mean, I I remember the Bee Gees on that night. It it was Top of the Pops when I I, I was introduced to them, but they don't remember. That we go back a long way. But um, he said to me recently, uh, last year, in fact, he plays the song regularly.
2: Now, I imagine for a lot of songwriters, it's probably one of the songs they wish they'd written. Which song by anybody else do you wish you'd written most of all?
1: Well, it, it would have to be a Bob Dylan song. For the chimes of freedom, I'd love to have written that.
2: But to go back to you, um, when you won your Ivor Novello Award in 1969 with David Bowie, I don't understand that. Was it like a joint winners?
1: Yes, because they couldn't separate the two, and and so I suppose, although uh, the Ivors now are completely different. Now they have 200 Ivors sitting up there. They they had six or eight at the time in 1969.
2: So it was like Record of the Year or something. Yes. Yeah. Uh,
1: so songwriter of the year or the best written song or whatever
2: did you meet david
1: yes i I met him backstage and we decided to actually write some songs there and they said well you're the best writer and i'm the best writer so (laughs) let's, let's write some songs together so he said and i said yeah well why not my manager then said pete you have to be in belgium tomorrow i'm sorry at that point david said which is more important me writing songs with you or belgium and of course it was Belgium because we had an appointment. We were going to get picked up, but we had to. We had to go. So I, I never saw him for eight or ten years.
2: What an eight or ten years yes. for David Bowie that was, as well. Yeah,
1: exactly. Yeah. And Later, I, I recorded, but the Sarsa Brothers recorded with Tony Visconti, uh, who was
2: producer of Bowie. Yeah. yeah,
1: exactly. He was the producer at the time, and I went round to his house, David's house in God. Beckenham. Beautiful. I, He would walk down the stairs, and people would applaud. He'd he'd walk down like a a magnificent creature. Uh, And uh, we were all underneath him. (laughs) No, he was a a, a marvellous guy.
2: So did you get to write songs with him?
1: No. I played him a couple of songs, but I I didn't actually get to write with him. (laughs) But Mm. uh, it would have been nice.
2: Which other well-known singer-songwriters have you befriended over the years? Have you got to know...
1: Herb Albert actually recorded my songs. Now, Herb Albert was an interesting guy because I met him at the backstage of a concert while he was being massaged by a beautiful woman. He said, any time you come to L.A., let me and Jerry know. Jerry Moss, his partner in A&M Records. I never did, of course, but he'd recorded one of my songs as a follow-up to a Burt Bacharach song. Herb and I got pretty close, but I never followed up. I should have gone to L.A. at the time when I was famous. And, of course, another Burt Bacharach influence is uh, my manager at, at, at the time, Chris Pierce. He said, Pete, somebody's on the phone, some some American guy. He's on about a Western. He wants you to sing the song, but you're not going to do it, are you? I said, no, 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 I'm not. Uh, I, I he said, Pete doesn't sing other people's songs. I'm sorry, Mr. Bacharach, but uh, oh. that's it. And it was ra- raindrops keep falling on my head. Oh. Um, some western or other.
2: Yes, right? Butch Cassidy.
1: Yeah, Butch Cassidy. <laughs> yeah. I was just studying. I said, yeah, that's, that's all right. Uh,
2: so they got B.J. Thomas to sing it yes. instead. And yeah, exactly. God. Yeah. Have you kind of kicked yourself over that moment? You didn't grab the phone and say, excuse me, I'll do it.
1: <laughs> well, <laughs> uh, as far as I was concerned, uh, I-, I trusted Chris Pears uh, at the time. You know, so uh, there's nothing to be said.
2: How do you kind of hope to become a big superstar and even go to Hollywood, perhaps be in the movies, as an actor like so many singers? With all respect, you had the moustache for a Western. I I
1: did. (laughs) I I had the fully grown (laughs) moustache. No, I'm too much into European humour, especially British humour. I mean, I've missed that. Uh, I've lived in America. I've travelled in America. I missed England. I knew this place to, uh, in a way, to bolster me up.
2: You had your own TV series,
1: yes. Peter sasted on various subjects. Uh, yeah, Peter sasted on. Yeah, because Bill Cotton, who was the managing director of BBC One at the time, he liked me very much. He liked the way I walked. Uh, but he, as he said to me later, he said, "I like the way you walk, Peter." <laughs> I said, "Um, yes, that's fine. We'll start you on BBC Two. We'll have six programmes, and you can do what you like." So I just had them on various subjects, uh, history, love, and various other subjects. It was on BBC Two, and none of it was recorded, of course. It was a live show. I would sing a few songs, and I had a guest, Lulu or Sandy Shaw, or some other girl. I know there was one guest a week.
2: And how long was each show, half an hour or an yeah, hour? It,
1: it was half an hour.
2: So you did six. Mm. And yep. were they offering you a second series?
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. They'd offered me something on BBC One, a Saturday night. The big show, as Bill Cotton was absolutely right. He said, you know, we'll, we'll have the six, and then we'll have you on, on BBC One. And he was right to his word.
2: But what happened then?
1: It was at that point where, where Crispy has said, Well, Pete, I've, I've achieved my ambition. I wanted to build a television star, and I have done. Now you can go home, or you can stay. And of course I went home. I went back to Denmark. I thought uh, sort of home was the answer. I, I chose to go home. Why
2: did he choose to go home, though?
1: Well, I hadn't been home. I mean, I, 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 I'd, done, I'd done six weeks. I, I was living in his house in, in Hereford Square. I, 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 I had a place, but I, I missed Anita. Yeah. I missed my wife and my home. I need, I need to get back.
2: Was the second series that was planned uh, for BBC One, was Mm. that going to follow immediately afterwards, or pretty much? Yes, yeah,
1: yeah, pretty much. And you Uh, just... I I turned it down.
2: Did you think uh, that you could go home for a little while and then come back and just Uh, do the show, or did you know uh, that you'd actually be just letting the chance go?
1: I didn't think about it. I never thought it through. So you never went back to Bill Cotton and said... No, I I never went back to him, because... uh, I just left it, uh, left it as it is.
2: Why do you think you didn't have any other hits of the same magnitude as Where Do You Go To?
1: Yeah, because I'm the, the original, but they said rock and roll would only last six months, and it, it, it's lasted a bit longer than six months. I fit that bill. Six months only was, was given me the, the window of opportunity, and I turned a lot of things down, and, of course, it's come back to haunt me. If I'd have taken the opportunities at the, at the time, the David Bowie incident or, you know, then things might have worked out different, differently. But a, as I didn't at the time, because uh, I'm intrinsically very lazy, although I, I work very hard at songs. Uh, I focus on songs.
2: But it sounds like neither of those particular incidents were down to your laziness. They were just other people making decisions for you, which actually spoils it for you.
1: Mm. Well... You've only got yourself to blame. Why I mean, whilst other people make decisions for you? You actually control things. But uh, I was very happy to let them, let them work, let them, let them carry on, as, as long as it doesn't bother me. I'm kind of lazy in that way. I don't influence others.
2: Have you spent a lot of time regretting?
1: No, I haven't. I haven't, because uh, I've got an agenda. Um, I've got to carry on. Yeah, with my children, and now it's my grandchildren I'm working on. I've got three, another one on its way. So um, I've got to attend to them. And uh, it's not so much I regret, because I'm looking in the mirror now. I'm not the physical attraction I once was. Who is, after 40 years?
2: Did you get mobbed in your day? Did you get screaming fans chasing uh, you?
1: My heyday was in 1961, when my elder brother... Rick or Eden Kane made it. I was the bass player in his band, and we used to get mobbed then. But it's vicious, because the girls want to scream for you, but they're guys. The guys hate you, and you have to escape them. So it's a double-edged sword, this this fame business. There are as many people hate you as love you.
2: Would you say that the success of Where Do You Go To has been a double-edged sword as well? Has been a bit of a millstone for you?
1: Well it had a very bad 80s. It never did anything in the 80s, in the whole of the 80s. So I had a very rough 80s, although I was living in Wiltshire at the time, living the life of a country gentleman. But the royalties were were really low. So I've tasted the bad times. I've, I've had some extremely dodgy times when I was heavily in debt. But things are not so bad now.
2: Did you ever consider selling the rights to to save the debt, like Lionel Bart did with Oliver, for instance?
1: Well, as I never owned it in the first place.
2: Did you not? It belonged to United Artists, did it?
1: Exactly.
2: You got uh, performance royalties and songwriting royalties, yeah. Yeah.
1: But you don't have the right to sell it, which uh, other people do.
2: Is it fair to say that it made you a fortune? No. Never?
1: No. It's never made me a fortune.
2: You said you lived the life of a country gentleman in Wiltshire, though
1: yeah but heavily in debt really yeah
2: what did you have like a great big detached mansion
1: well but, but you know we, we rented a mansion because it was easier to rent than it was to buy That's and it. of course we had a good estate agent and of course a, a big drafty mansion is exactly what they don't want now because it costs so much to heat i've never so been registered for VAT. to right. put it that way it shows you how much has, has been earned uh, if it's not
2: how big was that mansion? Like a ten-bedroom?
1: Yes, exactly. Ten bedrooms, yeah. We, we lived in, in various places. It wasn't just one place. We lived for a year at the mansion. We could only have it for a year, but we, we lived in a, a very large farmhouse near Marlborough for three years.
2: And what sort of a place have you got now?
1: A normal semi-detached, three bedrooms.
2: And are you married now?
1: Yes, for the third time.
2: Although, as you explained, you don't own the song as such, people will find it hard to understand how the person who wrote and performed this fantastic classic song Mm. can have had financial difficulties over the years. How how can that be? Mm. How how do you explain that?
1: It's just that uh, the income is is very low. The average songwriter earns less than £5,000 a year. The average songwriter earns very little. And uh, I'm an average songwriter, even though very few make it. Only 2% of the people share 98% of the money. I'm, I'm not one of those
2: 2%. There's been a few cover versions of Where Do You Go To? I, th- I think even Right Said Fred did it. Have you yeah. actually liked any of the uh, the cover versions? Uh,
1: no. I haven't liked them because they haven't understood the song. They've hacked it about. And uh, it's treated as a pop song. The ha-ha-ha business comes in. Uh, it's not serious enough for me. Especially the Right Said Fred. Although... I'm grateful for what mm. they've done for me in Germany. The right said fred version has been very popular in Germany. It, it, it has no Americanisms in it, which is why it, it, isn't, it isn't famous in America. Mm. <laughs> is that right? There are no Americanisms. Uh, 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 it's nothing to do with America.
2: Do you think that's true, that the, that the reason it's not been a hit in America yeah. is because there's no American references? Exactly. Really? Yeah. So do you think if you'd mentioned Kennedy or something, it would have mm-hmm. helped it over there? How amazing. Yeah,
1: Exactly. If you'd have mentioned something uh, American, because they have a different concept of entertainment.
2: Perhaps you should have thought of doing another version, which uh, <laughs> has American references, like Sinatra or something. Yeah. <laughs>
1: well, uh, you, you can't really do that, um, you know, to the song. You can't re- replace words with with other words. Uh, you know, because because they they happen at the same time. It's part of the song. You know. She talks like Marlene Dietrich. You can't swap Marlene Dietrich for Madonna or somebody.
2: I think I'm right in saying you did a more updated version of Where Do You Go to in 1997 or something like that.
1: Uh, yes. I've recorded Last of the Breed, which was an update, in, in Gastard and Colorado. She's now grown up. And uh, I tried to do a version, of course, it never charted. It. I don't think people are interested. It's the one song which is interesting, the way to go to. And a few of my friends and colleagues haven't even got one. Never mind. uh,
2: You mean one hit record? Yeah, exactly. Right, yeah, yeah.
1: And uh, so it's a benefit in a way.
2: If you were to do a new version today, Mm. who would you include in it? David Beckham or someone like that, or Obama, of course?
1: Well, I would have to sit down and think who would fit in. It wouldn't be an obvious... It would have to be, be subtle. And I, I don't think it's possible to do that now.
2: You could rhyme Beckham with Peckham. It's not quite Naples, but...
1: <laughs> <Yeah>.
2: <laughs>
1: Beckham and Peckham, yeah. <laughs> uh,
2: yeah.
1: I really have no idea. Uh, I would have to sit down with the guitar. I'd have to actually do it. But, but the thing is, am I prepared to withstand an old man like me? It's a young man's racket you have to be 25 26 you know in order to withstand the pressure and you have to be innocent it demands a young stud
2: have you had any uh, amazing moments in the last 40 years where you've walked into a hotel foyer and it just happens to have been playing or you've been watching a movie and suddenly it's appeared and you've thought hey go on where did they get that from
1: <laughs> well it's more like a supermarket where you hear it and, uh, of course, uh, on the tube, various buskers have said to me, you won't buy a drink in yeah. our pub where the buskers meet, around the back of Charing Cross. They said, you will not buy a drink here, because every time we play your song, in come the nuggets.
2: Have you ever walked past a busker who was performing it and actually said, I'm the one that wrote that? <laughs> <the one that's... laughs> no,
1: I've, I've never done that. But uh, other, other people have seen buskers singing my song. and mm. said, oh, God, I, I know him.
2: Am I right in saying that you and your brothers hold a kind of a record of having had number ones, the three of you or something, separately? Yes,
1: yeah. yes. Uh, all of the same family, yes. Uh, unlike the Gibb family.
2: Yeah, they had them together, didn't they? As
1: Yes, they the... had them together. To have three separate brothers, in yes, I believe there is a record.
2: How close are you to your brothers now?
1: Uh, well, one lives in Spain and, and the other lives in L.A., so uh, I rarely see them.
2: Which one lives in L.A.?
1: My elder brother,
2: right, Eden, Eden Kane. Kane. Yeah.
1: He, He's lived in L.A. since 1969.
2: Is there any chance of you three performing together? Something? Well, we,
1: we, we keep on thinking about it, but I don't <laughs> think there's any, any real chance of, of us actually coming together because it, it would take a lot of rehearsal.
2: And are you going to be touring again? Are you, what are your plans uh, musically? Well,
1: I, I just wait for opportunities. Who knows uh, that, that there may be an opportunity... There may be genuine offers of work if they come along. But I, ne- I never try. I, I, I don't have a manager, an agent, a publicist at the moment. I, I keep writing. but. Um,
2: Do you have fans now that you had way back when in 1969?
1: Oh yeah. mm-hmm.
2: The same people standing out there in the a crowd? A lot of that-
1: people came up to me and said, I, I saw you in Brighton in 1969. I was in Hove at this folk club. And the same people although there were new people there as well, laughing. And
2: they were going, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> Do you feel you've been given the credit you deserve?
1: Yes. Oh, yeah. I think so. I, I think with the, the advent of the Internet, there's um, been a lot of response to my song worldwide. And so Chris was right. The World Service is the key. And to be known up the Orinoco is very important. I'm known up the Orinoco, wherever that is. <laughs>
2: presumably people have fallen in love to your song and even made love to your song and perhaps even named their children after you oh, or yeah, something.
1: Yeah. Oh, yes, yeah, yeah. people have named uh, Mary claire There was a Mary claire who came up to me and says, I, I am I'm the result of your song. My mother named me after you. And uh, she's about 40 now, but uh, it was 1969.
2: Well, So you actually know the girl? Oh,
1: yeah, Mary claire yes.
2: Gosh, and where's she from, France?
1: Uh, no, she's English. She's from Croydon. Gosh, she
2: lives quite near you yeah, there. she
1: lives very close by, but she's got her own children, but still remembers from what she would do, Mary Claire.
2: I'm surprised the magazine hasn't used it as a kind of a theme for one of their ads or something.
1: Mm, yes. Well, because my Music, who own the song, are very jealous of it. How do you mean? It's the family silver, right. but they keep it on a shelf, and they will not let it out uh, until I'm dead. Uh, I suppose when uh, the floodgates will open. But they tend to respect the family's silver.
2: What do you mean they don't let it out? You mean when people have asked to use it on movies exactly. or adverts and things,
1: exactly. they've
2: refused? Yeah. Well, why, though? Isn't it great exposure?
1: Well, who knows? Who Doesn't... knows what their policy is? Maybe they are interested in hanging around, but they won't let it be on an ad.
2: Can't you overrule them? <laughs>
1: I could say yes as, uh, as many times as possible, but they own the song.
2: Have you never had a chance to say, no, you can't use my song, that's mine? I suppose because it doesn't belong to you.
1: Exactly, exactly. How frustrating is that? Well, well <laughs> it kind of puts a picture on it. If someone else can actually decide whether it's used or not, then uh, you don't care.
2: So, United mm-hmm. Artists was bought by EMI, was it? Was it part yes, of. Yeah, exactly.
1: I don't feel bitter. I, I may sound better that, 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 that that's because i'm a subscriber to private eye <laughs> oh, yeah.
2: what, what sort of ambitions do you have left what, what are the main aims in your life now
1: i'm, I'm saving something up but well, what you know what it is I, I'm, I'm not sure it's to do with music but uh m- maybe i'm destined for something i keep myself fit just in case there's uh, a need for me
2: a resurgence
1: mm. I, i'm willing to dye my hair if necessary How would
2: you like people to remember you after you've gone?
1: Once you're gone, it doesn't really matter, does it? You can say what you like, but you're you're a bunch of ashes, aren't you? But
2: now you're alive, you can tell people how you'd like to be remembered.
1: Yeah. I have no idea what people will make of me. It may even be that the song doesn't last very long.
2: I think it will. (laughs) It has already. It's still loved so much today, isn't it? How do you feel about the fact that you'll probably always be best remembered for that song?
1: Well, as I say, many songwriters haven't even got one song, so it's a pleasure. I take whatever is available. I will take that.
0: This is Peter Jonathan Robertson. I hope you've enjoyed my interview with Peter Sastet from 2009. If you'd like to let me know your thoughts on it, you can find me on Twitter, at R two.